Our Old Covenant reading this evening is from the book of Obadiah. We'll be reading verses 1 through 4 this evening. This is the word of the Lord. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up! Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Keep your finger with me in Obadiah, as that will be the primary portion of God's word for this evening's sermon. Turn with me to our New Covenant reading in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 will be reading verses 46 through 55. This is the word of the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. And exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Turn with me, if you would, back to Obadiah. When God speaks to us, we have to sit up and take notice, don't we? we? We can't just lean back and be passive observers, you know? Imagine someone just sort of kicking back in an easy chair. Eh, you know, God's speaking. Eh, that's nice. That's not how it works, right? When God speaks, we actually have to listen. God himself is speaking to us. And for the people of God, the reason that we sit up and listen is because when God speaks, it is for our teaching, for reproof. For correction, for training in righteousness. When God speaks to us, our lives, our actions, our thoughts, our very being is affected by what God says to us. I think we can all understand that pretty well, right? Let me ask you something that's a little bit more terrifying. What if God were to speak against you? What would that feel like? But that's exactly what happened to the people of Judah and Israel, wasn't it? They had wandered far from God. They had turned away from his law. They had rejected his ways. They had followed after idols. They did not believe in him. They refused to respond to his grace with faith. And so God spoke against them. The God who had spoken to them, his laws and his ways had turned to speaking against them. 
and he promised them judgment. He brought war and disaster upon them. He expelled them from the land. He sent them into exile. Now, after the fall of Jerusalem in 586 and the exile into Babylon, think of how devastated the people of Judah must have been. They had forsaken God. And and now, by all appearances, God had forsaken them. He turned his back on them. Their enemies had triumphed. They might have expected God to be done with them, right? Like, the last thing they heard was God speaking against them. They might have expected that if they heard anything from God again, it would just be him speaking against them more. But God is a gracious God, isn't he? That isn't what happens. Just when it seems that God has forsaken his people, at least from their perspective, he speaks. But he doesn't speak against them. He speaks to them. And he speaks against their enemies. Now, as we're going to see as we look at this very short book of Obadiah, the fact that God is speaking to his people and against their enemies reveals something about the character and the nature of God. It reveals that he is what he always has been, and that is he is a God of grace, a God of compassion, and also a God of justice. Just a little bit of background to Obadiah. There's actually not a whole lot to say about this book, right, and about the prophet. I mean, we don't know anything more about Obadiah than what we have here in verse 1. He's a prophet. He is speaking a vision from the Lord to the people of God. His name is Obadiah. That's literally all we know about this guy. It doesn't seem like much, but it's actually very important for the people of Israel. God is speaking to them again, and he is speaking against their enemies. Now, we can't be exactly sure of the timing of this prophecy, but many scholars, and I think they're right, place it between the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., and the fall of Edom about 30 years later in 553. And I think that actually makes sense in light of the context of the book. Um, We know from this text that Edom had done some sort of violence to Judah in the day when Judah's enemies came and attacked Jerusalem, right? So we've got an attack on Jerusalem, we've got the Edomites helping, uh, and that actually seems to match up with what Psalm 137 says. Uh, Verses 7 and 8 says, it says this, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. So see, what's happened in Psalm 137 is that the Babylonians um, destroyed Jerusalem, and the Edomites were involved somehow. In some way, they're involved in the destruction of Jerusalem. So, taking that into the context of the book of Obadiah, it seems to be referring to the same time as what Psalm 137 is talking about. Again, can't be absolutely certain, but I think that makes the most sense on how to read it. What is the purpose of Obadiah? We've already said that the purpose of Obadiah is actually to show that God is, again, speaking to his people. That is... God is communicating something to his people about his relationship with them. Remember, they had turned away from God and he had sent them into exile. But in speaking to them, God is telling them something about himself, something about the way that he relates to them. He has not utterly abandoned them. 
He is speaking to them, and as we will see, he will promise to redeem them. Also, this book is written against God's enemies. That is, just because God has sent his people into exile, that doesn't mean he's relinquished control of anything. Right? He's not a local deity. Like, you would kind of think that, right? If you conquered a, a local nation and you conquered their gods, that's what people thought. You know, they would carry off the idols into, into exile with the people because we conquered the people, we conquered their gods. But God is making it clear he's not that kind of deity. He is still in control of all things. He is still ruling over Israel and the nations. He is still judging in justice and in righteousness. So with that bit of background to what we're coming to, we're going to jump in here to the first four verses of Obadiah. And I think the most important thing to understand as we come to these verses is something that we've already said. God is speaking to his people. And the question we want to ask ourselves as we start in on these first four verses is, what is the message that God is speaking? I think it's quite simple. He wants them to believe something about himself. And he wants them to understand what he requires of them. He wants them to understand something about who he is and something that he is requiring of them. I think we could break down these first four verses with this phrase, because God is a God of justice who humbles the proud. We must trust in his sovereignty, hope in his promises, and fear him with reverence. Because God is a God of justice who humbles the proud, we must trust in his sovereignty, hope in his promises, and fear him with reverence. The first thing that these verses teach us about God is that he is just. He is a God of justice. Look with me again here at verses 1 and 2. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. Notice how this book begins. It begins with the vision of Obadiah. And that is making it very clear that Obadiah is a prophet from the Lord. He's not speaking his own words. He didn't make this up. He's speaking from the Lord. And since God himself is speaking, those who receive the message of Obadiah are bound to listen. Right? This is not just like, this isn't the newspaper. Like you go out, I don't know about you, I get the newspaper every day in my mailbox. I'm not sure how they do that, you know? But it's not like you go to the mailbox like, oh, a vision of Obadiah. That's not what's going on, right? This is something that God's people need to know. They need to hear it because God himself is speaking. The name Obadiah means servant or worshiper of Yahweh. You know, sometimes it is interesting to note the names of different prophets. And it seems to relate a little bit to the context in which they ministered. And here God is speaking to the remnant of Judah. To those who are still his servants. To those who worship him. He is calling them to himself in spite of the fact that they have been sent into exile. He has not forgotten them. And even in the midst of judgment, he is not unjust. God's justice is revealed in the way that he uses the nations as his instruments. 
He will, here he says, gather the nations together against Edom in order to accomplish his will and judgment. Edom itself had accomplished God's purpose when they participated in the fall of Jerusalem, right? That's what God had done. He had raised them up against Judah. God used them to punish Judah for their sin. And now he's going to punish Edom as well for their sin. And he will do the same thing to the rest of the nations whom he raises against Edom. Right? This is how God works. We, we read this in Isaiah 10. God said of Assyria, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. This is what God does. He raises up nations to do his will, and then he punishes those same nations for their sin and their iniquity. Edom had attacked Judah because they thought Judah had no allies. They were like, hey, look at these guys. They're getting wiped out. Let's get on some of the action, you know, get some of that stuff that happens when, when nations go down. We can steal all their stuff. They thought no one could pay them back. They would be able to take the spoil. They hadn't counted on God being the ally of his people. And so we see God sees and considers all the actions of the proud and the wicked. None can escape his righteous judgment. What God commands will happen, right? He commands the nations to gather, and they gather. He commands them to rise against Edom, and they rise. He commands that Edom be made small and despised among the nations, and it happens. This teaches us something about history and the way that history works. There are, there are two aspects to history. The first is that the Lord has all rule and authority and does everything according to his will. There's a second aspect to history, though, and that is that the nations and their rulers, they, they don't believe that God is ruling sovereignly over the world. They think that they're advancing their own causes and their own desires and wills. They think they're accomplishing their own purposes. But in spite of their motives, which is to serve themselves, all nations are actually advancing God's purposes. They are blind to this reality. They don't believe that God is doing what he pleases. They think they're doing their own thing. They're completely blind to what God is doing. But here's the thing. We aren't blind to that. We aren't caught by surprise when the nations think that they are doing their own will. We know that God sovereignly rules over all things, that he rules over us, and that he has revealed himself to us by his word. The nations think that God does not see but we know God does see and that he will act with justice. As God's people then, we are called to acknowledge his lordship, to walk in obedience to him. The second thing these verses teach us is that God humbles the proud. He humbles the proud. Look again here at verses 2 through 4. God says this, Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Verse 2 starts here with the word, Behold. It's, it's, like, it's an exclamation, right? Behold! 
Sit up, pay attention. God is telling his people, I'm about to do something. Look and see what I'm about to do. And the emphasis here on what God is going to do in verse 2, the emphasis is actually on the word small. I will make you small, God says to Edom. That's what God thinks of them. They're nothing to him. And that's actually a really bad place to be, right? Like when God says, you're nothing to me, that's bad. But there's a flip side to that, you know. Even if we are small in number, as the remnant of Judah was at this time, if God is on our side, we have nothing to fear. Even if the most powerful nations the world has ever seen set themselves against God and against his people, if God is against them, and he is against his enemies, he will make them small, and nothing will be able to make them stand. God has despised Edom. When God's favor rests on us, nothing else matters. When God despises a nation, all hope is lost. And this is what God is telling his people. Look, I have set myself against your enemies. What can that mean? It can only mean that God has turned to look with grace upon his people again. It doesn't matter how small they are. Their God is for them. Edom asks this arrogant question, who will bring me down? Edom was actually situated in a very defensible area. Like, I think their capital city could only be approached from one side, and that was, that was not an easy way to attack them. They were set up in the mountains. Not an easy thing to do. They really thought they had the military advantage, even though they were a fairly small kingdom. They felt that they could not be attacked. But God himself answers the question and says, I will bring you down. One commentator says these words. He says, in her boast, Edom was looking the wrong way. Being beyond man's reach, she forgot the incomparable greatness of God. She forgot who God was. But here's the thing. God is speaking to his people again and saying, this is who I am. I am still your God. You still belong to me. God is a God of justice and he will humble the proud. We confess that with our lips. But it's actually time for us to believe that with our lives. The nations are raging around us, no? But they will not get very far. The judge of all the earth will do what is right. We know, brothers and sisters, we know the end of this story. Jesus Christ came and lived and died and ascended into heaven to usher in his kingdom. His kingdom has begun even now. And what do we confess all the time? He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Where are the Edomites? I'm not an archaeologist, so I guess I couldn't tell you what's left of the Edomites, but my guess is there's not much. Right? Where are the Babylonians? 
God himself said that Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold, that it was one of the greatest, most powerful nations that had ever lived. Where are the Babylonians now? I bet there's like nobody alive who traces their lineage back to the Edomites or the Babylonians. I come from the Babylonians. Nobody does that, right? Because they're gone. The most powerful nations in history have all come to nothing. It happened then and it will happen again. The question we have to ask ourselves is, where does our allegiance lie? Are you a part of God's kingdom? Are you a part of this kingdom that will have no end? Because if you make yourself a part of other kingdoms, they will all come to nothing. And if that is true, child of God, if you are part of God's kingdom, then God is calling you to live for his kingdom. To live each day asking yourself the question when you wake up in the morning, what am I going to do today for the kingdom of God? How am am I going to serve Jesus Christ today, right here, right now, in what God has called me to do? How am I going to serve him? How am I going to serve him with those 20 minutes on my commute to work? How am I going to serve him while I work faithfully at my job? Show love and kindness to the unbelievers in my life. Show them what it looks like to live like a Christian. How am I going to serve Jesus Christ in those 10, 15, 20 spare minutes that I have before bed at night? These are the questions we want to ask ourselves because we do not belong to another kingdom. God is a God of justice and he will humble the proud. And because of that, there are some things that God requires of us. Because of who God is, we are called to trust in his sovereignty. To trust in his sovereignty. In verse 1, the prophecy begins, Thus says the Lord God. Don't forget, this is God himself who is speaking. God is making it abundantly clear. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. There is no God besides me. And when he uses that, that, that word, Lord, Adonai, he's speaking about his sovereignty. He is ruling over all the nations, not just Israel. He's not a local deity. He is the maker of heaven and earth. The fact that God is sovereign, the fact that we see his providence each and every day, should lead us to trust him more. Actually, ask yourself the question, are there things in my life that lead me away from trusting in God? Think about where the the people of Judah are at this time, right? Like, they're in exile. They might have been tempted to think that God couldn't be trusted because, like, he sent them into exile. But they are being called to remember something. Everything that has happened to them has proved God's sovereignty. He told them that if they rebelled against him, him, he would send them into exile. He told them, and he did exactly what he told them he would do, because he is sovereign over all things. This God that they rebelled against is a God who can be trusted to keep his word. This God who is speaking to them is a God who can be trusted to keep his word, because he is sovereign over all things. They could have been tempted for their situation to lead them away from trusting in God, but actually it pointed them to trusting in God. 
It's really important for us to ask ourselves the question, what is going on in my life that could lead me away from trusting in God? And the reason, the reason that's important to ask that question is this. For every committed Christian, for all of us sitting here this evening, there are many areas in our lives where we do trust in God. I know that for a fact because I talk to all of you. There are many things going on in your lives and you do trust in God. There is always something that we experience each and every day in which our trust in God needs to grow. There is always something in our lives that threatens to draw our gaze away from Christ. And don't forget, the devil is not going to come to you in your life and go, Hey, I want you to look away from God. It doesn't work like that, right? Because he knows that you're committed to trusting in God and looking to God. Rather, the devil would seek to attack us by, in one small area, pulling on one thread, getting to see if we can turn away from God. If he gets that one, he'll pull on another, and he'll keep pulling and pulling and pulling, and before you know it, the whole sweater comes unraveled, right? For the people of Israel, their downfall and the triumph of their enemies could easily have turned their gaze away from the Lord. But God is turning them back. He's turning their gaze back to himself. And he's saying, I'm still in control. People of Israel, I am the Lord God. Turn your gaze on me. We might ask ourselves, though, like, how do we understand this, right? Because, again, I know all of you. I know that you're trusting in God in many ways. How do we look at our lives and say, what is it in my life that is threatening to draw my gaze away from Christ? Here's the thing. I think the key is not to spend all our time looking at ourselves and saying, what am I doing wrong? Like, we could sit there and spend all our time doing that. Oh, did I do that wrong? Did I think that wrong? You can't really do that, right? It's not going to work. The key to... Living in constant trust toward God is to consciously take time every day to turn your gaze on Christ. And when you do that, God will reveal to you those areas where you are not looking to him. Like, ask God that question. God, what what am I doing that is not trusting in you? We talk about walking with God. But I wonder, Christian, are you taking that literally, right? We talk about this all the time. It's kind of good Christianese, you know? Yeah, we we have a walk with God. Like, why do we use that language? Because when you walk with someone, you spend time with them. And you listen to them. And you focus on them. You know? I bet if you went for a walk with a friend and ignored them, that they would not be happy. Uh, It's just my guess. But see, we talk about walking with God, but in order to walk with God each day, we must turn our gaze day by day on Christ. And the more we do that, the more we'll trust him. Because as we see him in his word, as we see him answering our prayers, we will know that he is a God to be trusted. Because of who God is, we must trust in his sovereignty. We must also hope in his promises. We must hope in his promises. See, in speaking against Edom and in promising to bring them down, promising to humble them, they thought they were high, they thought they were untouchable, 
But God says, no, I will bring you down, even if you are as high as the stars. And promising to do this, God is showing his people something. He's showing them that he hasn't forgotten his promises. In Genesis 12, verse 3, God promised Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God judged his people for their sin, yes, but he didn't destroy them. Because through them he would bring the blessing to the nations. Through them he would bring Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham, who would fulfill that promise. God left a remnant that he would never abandon his people. And also he would keep his other promise that he would turn against their enemies. And that is exactly what he did. The nations who cursed and dishonored the people of God have all perished. Right? Of some of them, we've got nothing left. But all we've got are a few lines in some manuscripts somewhere. We don't even know what happened to them. Of others of them, like what do we have? A few coins, some artifacts, some crumbling ruins? But the people of God, the children of Abraham, are as the sand that is on the seashore for multitude. Because God has kept his promises. In Obadiah's time, the people of God had not been utterly destroyed, just as he promised. He's beginning now to judge the nations who were their enemies, just as he promised. Even in the midst of judgment, the promises of God are coming to pass. Think about this. Whatever God is doing in the world, do you ever wonder that sometimes? You know, what in the world is God doing here? But whatever he's doing, he is keeping his promises. We don't always see it. We don't always understand it. But he is keeping his promises. Our hope is in the promises of God. And that hope will never be disappointed. The kingdom of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. We will see God face to face and dwell with him in all eternity. These promises will come true. God has made promises to his people as a whole, but he has also made promises to you as an individual, as one of his children. A sparrow cannot fall to the ground apart from God's knowledge and care, and you are of more value than many sparrows. God himself has promised to care for you. God himself holds you in his hands. Think of it this way. God is not so busy running the universe and governing the nations that he has no time for you. Right? We don't want to think of God like a CEO. You know, I remember the last job I was in. The CEO, he knew everyone by first name, which was kind of cool. It was a small company. He'd walk by your desk and say, hi, how you doing? Check on your week. But like, you didn't walk into his office. He was too busy. If you were going to walk into his office, you better have a good reason to do that, right? He's too busy to just hang out with you and talk. Sometimes we make the mistake of getting a, a view of God that way. Like, God, I know you're busy. I know you're running the world. and That's not how our God is. He's our Heavenly Father. He delights to hear your prayers. He delights when you come into his presence to worship him. To praise him, to confess your sin, to give thanks to him, to bring your needs before him. He delights in you. Psalm 138, verse 6. I love this verse. It says, For though the Lord is high, 
Biggest understatement in all of Scripture. Right? Though the Lord is high. Yeah, He is much higher than we could ever imagine. Though the Lord is high, He regards the lowly. He hears your every prayer. He knows what you need even before you ask. And so hope in the promises of this, your Heavenly Father. Because God is a God of justice who will humble the proud, we must fear him with reverence. We must fear him with reverence. When God sets himself against the wicked, there is no refuge for them. Who can bring down an eagle? Like, think about the imagery that God is using here. There's not a way to bring down an eagle soaring high in the sky. Who can cast down the stars? But the Lord who governs all creation can judge according to his will, and none can stop him. No one is safe from God's judgment. See, the wicked think that God has forgotten, but they are deceived. Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There is a great warning here to all those who refuse to bend the knee to Jesus Christ. But there is hope and comfort for the people of God. Our God is a God to be feared, and that goes for us as well. We are called to fear him, as Psalm 2.11 tells us, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. But see, there are different kinds of fear. There is the fear of God's judgment, and that's what happened to Israel, and that's what is happening to Edom, right? But we don't have that fear. Because Christ took all our sin and guilt on himself, he bore the wrath of God for us. We don't fear God's judgment, but we are called to a reverent fear, a fear that knowing the sin and the misery from which we were saved, knowing that we deserve nothing but judgment and wrath, knowing all this, we are to have a reverent fear that desires to serve and please God as our master and Lord. God is our father, and he's also our king. We are bound to obey and to serve him in all of life. This God who judges the wicked and casts down the proud is not to be dishonored or ignored. And because God has sent his spirit into your hearts, whereby you have been taught to cry, Abba, Father, this same God who is your father is to be feared and loved and obeyed. Our God is to be trusted for his sovereignty. He is to be hoped in because of his promises. And he is to be worshipped and obeyed with reverence. Amen.